Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Good to see you all. Well, whenever I hear from someone new, I always appreciate just getting a little bit of a glimpse into their backstory. I feel like it builds some relational trust. And so if you'd allow me for just a moment uh, to, to give you a glimpse into a little bit of my backstory, um, I tell people that in, in circumstances like this, I tell people that the last thing I ever thought I would be when I was growing up was a follower of Jesus. Uh, Mom and Dad gave me the best of everything they could. Uh, they're really, really phenomenal people, but Mom and Dad didn't walk with Jesus, and so the only hope that Mom and Dad could offer to me when they were raising me was hope in me. Now, I, I don't know if you have ever lived with hope in nothing past you, but I, I lived with hope in nothing past Stephanie for almost 22 years. Hope in nothing past Stephanie led me down a path that included pretty deep disillusionment and, for me, really paralyzing fear. Um, when I graduated from high school, I went away to college, and uh, I tell people that God was really the farthest thing from my mind. Honestly, four years of high school, I never met one person talking about Jesus. If anybody knew Jesus in my high school, no one was talking about him. I go away to college. God is the farthest thing from my mind, but I love to tell people that I was not the farthest thing from his. There was a ministry on my campus called Chi Alpha, and the students of Chi Alpha gave me something really quite meaningful and quite beautiful. Uh, they didn't wait for me to go find them. Now, how many of you know as an 18-year-old non-Christian student, I wasn't looking for Christians? You know what I mean? I was, I was looking for a lot of things, but I was not looking for Christians, you know? And I, the, the students of this ministry, they didn't wait for me to go find them, but they came and found me. And they gave me this incredible gift. For three years, uh, three years they loved me. They showed me the life of Jesus reflected through their lives. I really hadn't seen that. And they prayed. They prayed and they prayed. It took them a little over three years because I'm pretty hard-headed. Uh, I like to say they persisted when I resisted. And um, at the beginning of my senior year of college, the Lord won my heart. And I won't go into the entire story, but I am privileged to be able to work with the ministry that won me to Christ. It's a real, real great privilege. I've had the joy of working from coast to coast uh, with this ministry. And about a year and a half ago, I moved uh, to Springfield for the second time and uh, to work with our, our ministry center here. And some friends, I was looking for a church and some friends one night at dinner on a Saturday night mentioned, hey, we have family who go to Solid Rock. I came the next day and I thought, wow, I, I really like it here. I like the thoughtful approach to faith. I loved being tethered into the historical church. Uh, and so I thought, man, I like it. I, I think I could go back. And the next week I came back and Nanette remembered my name. And I thought, I think I can make it home here. I think I can make it home. We never know those, those things that don't seem big that are really meaningful. And uh, so I have had uh, the joy of being part of this church family for a little over a year. And uh, this morning as we get into the message, I want to take a look at the life of Jacob, one of the fathers of our faith. Um, a lot of us will be familiar, if you've taken some laps around the Bible, you'll be familiar with uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is that Jacob. He's not necessarily a perfect example to follow. Uh, and we'll, we'll take a look at that this morning. I appreciate the honesty of scripture that uh, allows us a glimpse also into the lives of some people um, in our historical family. So we're going to look at Genesis 32. And just by way of introduction of, Gen of uh, Jacob's life, 
Our friend Jacob has a bit of a complicated life. Again, if you've taken some laps around Genesis, you're familiar with this. He is uh, a, a twin. He's the second-born twin. His brother Esau born moments before him, um, which in our culture, I don't know that it means as much. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a twin. I, when I was about four, I, I, this deep revelation, I wanted to be a twin. And then like seconds later, like the crushing reality that that was never going to happen. So I was always fascinated by twins. You know, they have this, their own language and everything like that and um, but so I don't know that it means the same in our culture when you're when you're born the second of, of, of a set of twins in their culture it meant a lot because the firstborn uh, is the one who receives like the double portion of inheritance the patriarchal blessing basically all the good stuff I'm the firstborn in my family and what I got was a double portion of responsibility you know, I mean, I got the double portion of chores. I got, you know, don't hit your brother because you're going to hurt your little brother because you're going to hurt him. I'm like, he fights worse than anybody. I know. I'm like bleeding and don't hurt your brother. I'm like, I'm the one bleeding, you know. So being the firstborn today is not the same as being the firstborn then when you receive the double portion of inheritance. You basically, you, you, again, you get all the good stuff, the, the father's blessing. Your, your, your younger siblings ultimately would, would need to be subject to you. So somewhere in Jacob's life early on when he realized that I'm, I am born moments after my big brother, he must have been like, oh, what the what, man? Even from birth, I can't get a break here. Now, I have found that there are two kinds of families. I, I don't mean to simplify life too much, but I think there are two kinds of families. There's the family that puts the fun in dysfunctional and the family that takes the fun out of dysfunctional. And you, you all are just like, you know, identifying your family right now, deep in your heart, I know. I, I've come from, uh, my mom's side of the family is Greek. Uh, if you've seen my big fat Greek wedding, then you've met my big fat Greek family. And I'm not even kidding. I saw the movie with the family and my aunt as we're walking out. It's like watching home movies. You know, we didn't do the Windex and we didn't roast the lamb in front of the house. But I'm not saying there weren't lambs like lamb heads and parts all over grandma's house, you know. So th that side of the family, though, put the fun in dysfunctional. Crazy, crazy, crazy family. Give you their last dollar. Do anything for you. Jacob's family, I would say, took the fun out of dysfunctional. His brother Esau is favored, very clearly favored by their father. In fact, Esau is described as a skillful hunter and a man of the open country. Now, I think when you read that in scripture, you need to change your voice to he was a skillful hunter. A man of the open country. You know, I mean, it just kind of comes with that, where it says Jacob was quiet and content to stay among the, the, the tents, you know? So you have the skillful hunter, the man of the open country. And then Jacob, he's a reader. He's artsy. You know what I mean? He, he stays at home a lot, you know? In fact, it says there that he was actually favored by mom. Maybe he's a mama's boy, I don't know. But in their culture and in their family, Jacob in many ways didn't measure up. He manipulates, as we read their whole backstory, he manipulates the inheritance from his brother. He exploits his brother's weakness to manipulate the inheritance. His mom is manipulative. She manipulates the blessing to go to Jacob. Jacob lies to and betrays his father with a kiss. His brother Esau is so mad that he begins plotting revenge to kill Jacob. Now, I don't know if you have kids who fight. We fought when I was growing up. We fought. We got into a thing where we were like doing... Um, Water, water fights in the house, you know, we would do, and then those things escalate. So one day, water fight with my little brother in the house, I go outside, bring the hose, turn the hose on, kink it, bring it in the house 
while mom's at work, right? My brother comes around from the kitchen. I'm there waiting with the kink toes, and all I got to do is like that, and it just comes rushing out. My brother falls, slips, breaks off his braces. True story. Don't tell my mom. True, you know, and, um, and you know, I mean, because those things escalate, right? And, and so, but, but even with that, and mom comes home, everything's dry, but the, we got to go to the orthodontist. I don't know. He just fell, you know? And, but, but what we, I mean, that was nothing like this. Esau is literally plotting to, to kill his brother because he's so angry. Jacob leaves home, an encouragement from his parents, leaves home and runs for safety under the pretense of finding a godly wife. I got to go find a godly wife, so I'm taking off, right? And he goes far away to a relative's home. If you continue to read the story, you'll see that a lot of the complications of Jacob's life just follow him. We, we know that like, we, can, we can go to a new place, but we end up bringing our old issues with us. Our old issues don't stay back at the old place necessarily. Jacob has a complicated relationship with his relative, his uncle. There's deception in that relationship, deception in the marriage for 20 years to the point where we're, we're going to pick up today. At this point, 20 years after leaving home, he is financially successful. He's got two wives, story in itself, lots of kids, flocks, servants, family drama. And he decides to return to home. The one who used to love being at home, finally after 20 years, is going home. He sets out with his wives, his children, servants, and flocks. The one thing that Jacob fears the most is facing this brother that he cheated. The brother who had had the blessing he wanted, the brother who had had the father's affection and favor, the brother who maybe even had the life that Jacob wanted, the brother that he deceived and manipulated and ran from for his life, he will see this brother after a 20-year conflict. And this is where we pick up in Genesis 32, starting in verse 3. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, and instructed them, you shall say to my lord Esau, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In verse 7, In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So here's Jacob facing his greatest fear. 20 years of fearing, facing his brother Esau, the fear that he ran from. And he immediately goes into crisis management mode. He, this, he, he starts manipulating the situation again. Remember, he's pretty good at manipulating things. And he hears his brother's coming with 400 men. His mind immediately goes to, oh, my goodness, like, my brother's coming with an army to, to, to take us down. So he starts separating his, his, you know, his wives. Okay, one wife go there, you go there, children, children, flocks, flocks, you know, servant, servant. Thinking that if, if, if Esau and his army come, they could attack one group, maybe the other group will be left to escape. If Esau harms one group, one, one group might actually make it, make it out of there. And his greatest fear here comes to life, and he immediately goes into trying to control and manipulate the situation. Later on, we, we'll read, or if you read later on, he actually sends gifts to Esau, not out of generosity, but in his, his words, I might appease my brother. I might pacify his anger. Now I'd love to bring this closer to home because I think there is a picture of perhaps a familiar struggle. I know in my own world, perhaps a familiar struggle for us. Now I'm going to ask you this. I'm not going to ask you to share it out loud, but 
But what is your greatest fear? Honestly, if we were silent, like Matt talked about last week, there's something about silence and solitude. When you're silent, when you're still, what comes up? What is your greatest fear? I've worked with students for so long that I know most of them, their greatest fear is quite simply not measuring up academically. I, I lived on a university campus in Washington, D.C. for many years, and the students there, a lot of them had come from a background where they were number one in their high school class, and their greatest fear was that they are no longer number one. I literally would hear them say, I was number one in high school, and now I'm surrounded by people who are number one, and their fear was, I cannot possibly measure up in this environment. Is your greatest fear perhaps being alone? or even death. I remember being a brand new Christian, um, and this really marked me. There was a family in our church, they were kind of elders of the church. Uh, in fact, the husband, I think, was on the board. The wife was kind of like the mother of the church, and their daughter was the worship leader. Just people I really respected, people who had loved Jesus for a long time. And I remember one time a, a speaker asked something about if you fear death, and I remember that the wife stood up. And I, I remember that marked me so much, because in my brand new Christian mind, I thought, you know, once you've been a Christian for more than like 36 weeks or something, you got everything all figured out and all together, you know? It so shocked me that she stood because of this fear of death. But then I remember thinking, I'm so grateful for this moment of honesty that she demonstrated she was really wrestling. She feared death. Is a fear for you perhaps not being in control or not being forgiven? Maybe that the shade of shame will never leave. Maybe that God will ask you for an obedience that is too costly, that you feel is too costly. What is your greatest fear? And then how much of yourself is expended by trying to control what you fear? How much of yourself is expended by trying to control what you fear? Because I think a lot of times we try to deal with these internal things through external methods the way Jacob did, by trying to control the things that are outside of us. And again, working with students, I see them, if I could just, if I could just change this, this class or change this schedule or change my major, things will be okay. And I think that grows up into, if I can just change my spouse or just change my boss or my job or my church or, or whatever. I think that thing grows up into something else where if we can just change something else, we'll feel okay. Because the, the temptation is to look at what is outside rather than say, God, are you inviting me into something else here in this place? So let's look at Genesis 32 again. Let's continue on in verse nine. Because Jacob prays and he says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all of the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. In other words, God, you've been so good to me. Like, I came here. I left my family's house with nothing but a staff, and now look at all these things that I have. Verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. I think it's so interesting here because Jacob, he says the right words and he prays the right prayer. But have you ever said the right words, prayed the right prayer, and maybe didn't totally believe it? <laughs> you know, I think he prays the right prayer, but his attempt to control the situation reveals what he actually really believes the fear that God will not take care of him, that God is not good to him, that God is not good. 
I, the, uh, there's a, a book called Hustling God. Author is M. Craig Barnes. He was a pastor in Washington, D.C. I think he's now the president of Princeton Theological Se- uh, Seminary. He wrote a book called Hustling God that I, the seed of this message came from. And I love, he says this. He said, when we make decisions because we are afraid, that is when we make the biggest mistakes. And haven't we all been there to some level? You know, when we make the decisions based on our fear, when we're afraid, I mean, and, and, you know, there's context to that. If you make a decision to get out of the highway when there's traffic, that's a wise decision. So there is context to this. But a lot of times when we make decisions based on fear, that's when we make some mistakes. We make deals with fear. It's like we make a partnership with fear. It's like saying to fear, I'll let you protect me. I'll, let, I'll make a partnership with fear and let you protect me. I'll prepare for the worst case scenario like Jacob did so I don't have to actually face my fear. For me, how that fear has been reflected over the course of, of my Christian life is a lot of times I, I, I just do anything to try to convince God to like me. Because in some ways, my greatest fear was not being loved or valuable or, you know, somehow I had to work my way into God's favor. And that's just generally how it came out for me. I've done that with people. I've done it with God. It's this sense that if I just have the presentation and everything's all together, then somehow I'll be seen as valuable and God will like me. And, and that's, you know, that's the thing that I've wrestled with in my years of walking with Jesus, and, and less so now, thankfully. But, I mean, again, my fear was not that I wasn't valuable or lovable or valued in some way. My fear was somehow that God was not good and that somehow he was not good to me. Jacob's fear was not truly in Esau. It was that God was not good, and God was not good to him. So for you, again, is it measuring up, being alone, being forgiven. Because I don't think those are really our fears, friends. I think they're real, but I don't think that's the bedrock of the fear. I think the bedrock is the fe- of the fear is that somehow God would not be so good, that God's character is not so good, that his love and his kindness braids together and holds us closely with him. That he walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death. God's goodness doesn't mean that we're not going to go through those times. I mean, the very fact that it's in there, he will walk with you, you know, I will be with you in the valley of the shadow of death, implies there is a valley of the shadow of death. If he's going to prepare a table in the presence of our enemies, as, it, as, it, as we read this morning, there's the inherent understanding there, is going, there are going to be the presence of our enemies. I remember years ago, um, someone was saying something about me that was just really unfair. I felt unfounded, and I stumbled on that verse in, in uh, the scriptures that said, the Lord is my shield. And so I was like, God, you're my shield, so make these, you know, I felt like these words were coming at me like arrows. You're my shield, so make these arrows stop. And the Lord very clearly just kind of gave me an understanding that if, if, if there weren't arrows coming, I would never know him as my shield, I now know him as my shield. I know the goodness of his protection because I've had things being said that were hurtful. We all have. And if those things never come, then we'll never know him that way. If we never walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll never know how closely he walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death. And friends, I think this is just an age-old issue. I think this goes back to the garden. I think it goes all the way back to the garden to this morning's headlines. 
whether the whether the the question of the goodness of God. I mean, I think we can look on if we look on CNN or whatever news thing today. I mean, the the issues really there are issues of the goodness of God. People ask those questions now. You and I hear it all the time. If God was really good, then why does this happen? But that goes way back to the garden as well. If God was really good, why would He be holding out on you with this one tree? Come on, if God was really good, come on, you know. He knows that you'll be like him. If he was really good, why would he tell you not to eat from this tree? He'd give you everything, wouldn't he? It's the same thing that has gone from the garden to this morning, the same card that's been playing. Final few thoughts. I think very often, friends, we try to, I think we try to present ourselves as more than we are while believing ourselves as less than we are. Let me say that again. I think we present ourselves as more than we are but believe that we're less than we are. I, I see this a lot of times working with students again, or maybe you've done this, you know, like you, like you spend time with God this morning, first time, like, you know, in like four months, and then you run into your pastor, and then you're like, you know, as I, you know, as I was spending time with Jesus this morning, you know what I mean? Like, you know you haven't talked to Jesus in like four months, you know what I mean? But like, we like throw that out there, you know, the Lord was speaking to me this morning about, you know, and, and I, you know, I see this with students in their small groups, you know, they're like, you know, I'll ask them, you know, how's your small group going? They're like, great, great, love it, best thing ever, and they're, you know, like they hate it every week or something, you know. I think we try to present that we're more than we are, but we, we believe that we're less than we are, and again, if you've taken laps around scripture, you'll be familiar with the story of David. I think he did this as well. King David, who, um, King David, beloved of God, did a dumb thing one night, you know, he sees this woman, sleeps with her, she's married to somebody else, like, bad decision, stupid decision, David, I mean, really, and then it goes from that to the point where she says, hey, I'm pregnant, and he's like, okay, now this is really bad, because, like, now there's, you know, now this is going to happen, and so what does David do? He, he tries to bring her husband back, and uh, tries to, you know, set up a little night for the husband, and, and Bathsheba, and, and the husband won't sleep with her, and so he tries to get him drunk, and, you know, he goes through this all thing, this fear of being found out. He goes into manipulation mode, he goes into, let me try to control the situation mode, rather than saying, dear God, forgive me, dear God. He goes into trying to control the situation to the point where he sends out her husband to be killed. I mean, like, that escalated quickly. You know what I mean? It went from, I'm going to try to get you to sleep with your wife to now you're dead. I mean, that escalated pretty quickly in this whole thing. And I think where, where David missed it, where, where David missed that, David forgot who he was. David, you're a king. David, you're a child of God. David, you're a man of God. You're a man after God's heart. When we operate out of fear, I think we forget who we are. David, you're a king. David, you're a worshiper. David, get it right with God again. Don't, don't manipulate the situation based out of your fear. Just get it right with God. This is an invitation to get it right with God again. When we operate out of fear, we forget who we are. And when we operate out of fear, I think we forget who he is. He is still the one who can calm a storm. He is still the one who comes close in the valley of the shadow of death. He is still the one who meets us in whatever our own lion's den is. He is still the one who turns water into wine. He is still the one who is the resurrection and the life that we celebrated just three weeks ago on Easter. He is still that one. It's still Easter morning because he is still the resurrection and the life. Fear makes us forget who we are. Fear makes us forget who he is. I think all this started, friends, because Jacob didn't 
know or didn't remember, if, if you look back at words in his story, if you read through his story, he actually had received a blessing from the womb. Somehow he didn't know that, didn't remember it. He was actually blessed by God. And somehow, I think when we don't know and don't remember the blessing of God, the, the nearness of God, the goodness of God in our lives, I think, we, I think when we forget that, we forget who God is, forget who we are. A.W. Tozer says this. I, Tozer just, he just gets me sometimes. He just, not, not gets me like, oh, I get, I get her. You know, but like, like he gets me. His words strike me. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Were we able to extract from any man, any, any person, a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. He is still the one who calms the storm with the word. And what we think about him and his goodness, man, as we, as we rest, as we settle, knowing the goodness of God, that he is near us even in the valley, that predicts the future of our walk with him. It just gives us an insight into the future of our walk with him. And I think what he does in us, he wants to do through us. Because when we leave here today, everywhere we go, we see people wrestling with whether God is good. What he does in us, he wants to do through us. As I wrap up with this, I, I didn't know, um, a few weeks ago when I felt like God inclined my heart toward this message, I didn't know that the, the readings would be the ones that were. I just looked it up this week and I thought they were so appropriate. Psalm 23, the good shepherd. I mean, he is our shepherd. I, I just had, I, I just thought it was so appropriate. I went, oh my God, Lord, I think you do know what you're doing here, you know? And then the one that we didn't read but is listed in the common lectionary today is John 10, starting in verse 11, where it says that I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his, his sheep. He is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He lays down his life. I don't think Jacob necessarily reflected that very well. He was the shepherd that said, I'm going to split you guys up so maybe only half of you, you know what I mean, would, would, would die where our good shepherd lays down his life for his, his sheep. And how badly does our world need to know that reality? How badly does our world need to know that we have a good shepherd who does not put us in that place and leave us alone? So we're going to pray. We're going to wrap up, and then Matt's going to come and lead us in Holy Communion. Father, we are not worthy, as, as Jacob said, we're not worthy of the least of all of the steadfast love and faithfulness that you've shown us. Yet you love us perfectly, beautifully, completely, magnificently, because you are good. And you have said, I will surely do you good. And as you have said that, God, this morning, those things that might otherwise get in the way, those maybe partnerships or alliances with fear. God, we give those to you. We renounce those and we rest in your perfect love. God, I pray that your goodness would be reflected in our lives in a way that the entire world, or at least our entire world, could see the goodness of God reflected in us. Amen.